first, I guess you need to know something about them. The beautiful ones. The flawless four. Everyone wanted to be them. You know them. They went to your school, too. They totally ruled. The one in green, that's Courtney. She was the leader. She was like Satan in heels. The blonde, Marcy Fox, a legend in her own little mind, known to herself as Foxy. Oh, uh, the leggy one with the pigtails is Julie, doomed to be popular because of that face. And because she was best friends with the one in the pink. That's Liz Purr. She was special. Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. This is a podcast about women in film and TV that we are honestly still kind of figuring out. Sometimes we'll talk about female directors, sometimes female writers, actors, cinematographers, costume designers, etc. Our goal with this podcast is really just to continuously highlight women in film and to talk about films with a feminist lens. You may know me from my blog, womaninrevolt.com, which aims to do a lot of the same things. So welcome. We're happy to have you here with us. And I am so excited about this podcast today. Lindsay has introduced me to a movie that I've never seen, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. So we should tell you that we've decided it would be fun to do this thing where each of us make a list of movies that we loved as teenagers. And then we're going through and finding ones that the other person has not seen. I've made my list and Joe has highlighted the films on it that she hasn't seen. And then she's done the same for me. Periodically, we'll be going through those lists, pulling out films from them, and talking about them. And we thought it would be fun because, I don't know, I know there are some movies from my childhood that I have great nostalgia for, but I always kind of wonder if someone saw them now for the first time, would they get anything out of it? Or would it be kind of shitty because you don't have, you know, that nostalgic memory of watching it at a time when everything was so influential in your life? Absolutely. That is one thing I've found, especially in my age group, because I was a teenager in the mid-70s to early 80s, and so many films that I have memories of them being so great, and I thought they affected me. When I've gone back and seen them, I have been like, oh my God, this sucks so bad. Some of them do hold up, so I tried to pull the ones that I felt like maybe would still be worth watching for you. Yeah, and I know over the years... We've watched some movies that you recommended that I had never seen, and sometimes I really liked them, and other times I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm thinking of uh, Places in the Heart with Sally Field that I know you had a, a great fondness for, and I just felt, like, okay about it. Right. Uh, and I'm sure there are going to be a lot of films where I was obsessed with them, and you're going to be like, why? <laughs> what is this? Right. Right. Yeah, I think it's all about, well, of course, I mean, our age disparity, just the time that I grew up. Also, I grew up, you know, in Alabama. I grew up in a completely different environment at a completely different time and just the way I was raised. I think all of that contributes to your film experience. And I think hopefully we change as we age and things that 
I used to love. I can see the problems with them and they don't sit with me. Things that I never thought that I would like, I love. And that'll probably happen to you. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? But I like to think of it just as a learning experience, as just being a student of life and hopefully growing as we age. I think it's really easy to tell how far you have come when you revisit a piece of art that was super meaningful to you and you can see it in a new way, right? That's growth. That's you saying, hey, I don't feel the same way as I did at one point about this. Maybe you feel better about it. Maybe you feel worse about it. Maybe you just see different things that you didn't see before. But to me, that's always kind of a marker of where I'm at in my life, what has happened, and how I'm thinking about things in the present. So I think that's interesting, and hopefully this will be a worthwhile project and people will enjoy it. And I should say, I did put a lot of Mary-Kate and Ashley movies on my list. So, <laughs> Joe, you have a lot to look forward to. Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> Prepare for that. <laughs> so we should say the movie that we are talking about today is Darren Stein's film that he wrote and directed from 1999 called Jawbreaker. And I'm sure that a lot of people who are my age in the millennial generation grew up with this film and had a deep obsession with it, especially if you saw it while you were either a preteen or in high school. Yes, I have to say when this came out, I was around the age of 36-ish. I did not see it. I did not that I can remember. I've heard about it maybe in later years here and there in different references, but I never really knew about it. So this was me seeing it really for the first time. I made sure I didn't look up anything about it. That's usually what I try to do with movies that I've never seen before is I do no research. I just went into it eyes wide open. Then I did some research on it, and then I did a second watch on it. So that was a very interesting process as well. And for me, I don't remember when, I don't remember this film being in theaters. And that might be because it was, the distributor was like a direct-to-VHS distributor. So it never was intended to get a wide theatrical release and it didn't and I'm sure that it did not come to where I was at which was like a small town north of Pittsburgh but I remember seeing this for the first time on VHS at a friend's house and I was probably in ninth grade so maybe like 2003 or four so that's when I saw it for the first time so not right as it was released but a few years later. I'm curious I mean the first time you saw it what did you think were you just loving it or were you uh, just what was your feelings when you saw it oh like deep obsession where I wanted this movie to become my whole personality <laughs> like it's the type of movie where I memorized quotes from it and my friend and I would say them to each other and I'm pretty sure I had at least like five different AIM away messages that were quotes from this film and I had dialogue in my AIM profile and it was just kind of a thing that I think I used as a marker to like tell other people how cool I was you know that was a thing in like high school middle school where you used the things you liked to, as signifiers for who you were as a person this was kind of like that for me so do you think so you first watched it like 2003 2004 ish 
Do you think already by then it was becoming a cult classic with kids that had not initially seen it even four years earlier? I don't really know because most people that I hung out with or that I that I knew in high school hadn't seen it. I still felt like it was under the radar. And I think because it was only on VHS, as I remember, and I think probably at this time, a lot of people were getting DVD players. I'm not sure when the DVD came out, but I kind of feel like a lot of people didn't know what it was. And at least in my circles, a lot of the movies that people were really obsessed with were like the movie Seven, the movie Rounders, like movies about poker and really like male dominated, even even the women that I knew. Like, again, this was just kind of one of those movies with a largely female cast that is like a largely candy coated feminized narrative. And I don't really feel like most people were into that or knew about it or cared about it. So this was a friend of a friend that had it. Was this friend of a friend female? No, this was a guy that I dated. Oh. Uh, so this, actually, this might have, okay, I think this was summer 2004. I'm fairly confident this is when it was because of that relationship. Yeah, so friend of a friend that I dated, that's how I saw the film. He was a man. I don't know why he had it or how he had it. Um, I don't remember. And it definitely, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was indicative of other films he liked either. So I don't know. That's a great mystery. If I had a way of getting in touch with him or had a desire to talk to him, I would ask him, but I don't know. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where the universe just knew that you were going to see it. You were going to be one of the first to recognize its cult worthiness and it bestowed a gift upon you. That's what I feel like. At least in my tiny little north of Pittsburgh town, I'm sure that people in other towns were loving this. And I mean, at that point in time, I don't really think I was using the internet to find community with strangers yet. I feel like for me, that came a little bit later. So I'm sure if I had been more tapped into the internet at the time, I would have found so many other people who loved this movie. But because of where I was and because of technology still being kind of early or me still being kind of early to it, I feel like I didn't have that but I could see how I would have had I been more tapped into like chat rooms and forums and things like that right and I think that contributes to the power of the film and and I'll just go ahead and say that I thoroughly loved the film I enjoyed it I think I would have loved it at 36 just knowing me yeah (laughs) I feel like that it has it came out at a time when, like you said, people really weren't tapped into the internet like we were, but not like we are today. I think that just really is more of a testament to its longevity, just how good a film it was and how it how it still made it, despite not having the promotion and release that it should have had from the beginning. Right. And so that because it was a or because it was intended to kind of have a really small theatrical release and be primarily like a VHS direct to movie release they didn't really spend any money on marketing in an interview Rose McGowan had said that the distributor had to kind of choose between marketing this movie or marketing 
what was the other movie? I think it was Not Drive Me Crazy. That one with Jennifer Love Hewitt, Can't Hardly Wait. Can't Hardly Wait, right. So and they put the money into Can't Hardly Wait. And in the interview, she very bitchily and accurately said, well, they made a mistake because obviously Jawbreaker is still culturally relevant. And who is really thinking about Can't Hardly Wait in that way? No one. He's like, I just think once again, it was too queer and too many women. A story focusing around women didn't have a lot of strong male characters, really none at all. So I just think Hollywood just was like, eh, it ain't going to make it. Let's just whatever. It got made some weird way. Let's just sweep it under the rug, you know, as they normally do. It's like when they don't understand how they can market things in a traditional way, they just don't give a shit about it. It's like, oh, there's no strong man who's the lead that we can slap on a poster and use to get people to come see this. Well, that doesn't exist. So let's just half-ass our jobs here. That's how it seems to me. Exactly. And I think in one interview that I read, because I read like several interviews and watched a whole bunch of stuff about it after I saw it the first time. But Rose McGowan did say, I believe she was the one that said in the interview, because it was so under the radar, once again, there wasn't a bunch of Hollywood execs putting their finger on top of everything and insisting stuff get changed. They had to change some stuff to get rid of the NC-17 rating, but pretty much they just had free reign to come in under a little paltry budget and make this film. And I think once again, that's what makes it so good. I think that's why so many women directed women films come forward so well is because they don't have all of this interference from the same, oh, oh, you've got to do it like this. Like, like somehow they slide under the radar. And I felt like this film did that. It's almost like being underestimated gives you some type of advantage. If you can hit the sweet spot of Getting enough money to do what you want to do, like to execute on your vision, but not being seen as potential blockbuster for the studio. If you can kind of toe that line, it seems like you can really make something that is cool and subversive and true to your vision. But I think towing that line is so hard. This movie definitely does it. And I think, as you say, that's why it's still a cult classic. That's why it has such longevity. But I think there are a lot of films that really either get fucked up by the studio or don't get enough money from the studio. And so they they can't execute properly. So I think for this one to have been able to do that is kind of miraculous. It truly is. I agree with all of that. And I just love every character in here. Why don't you introduce us to the film. Like you said, I'm sure everyone has hopefully seen this. If not, please run out and see it right away. But why don't you tell us about some of these wonderful women that are in this film? Yeah, so just to give you a brief synopsis, when Courtney, who is played by Rose McGowan, Marcy, played by Julie Benz, and Julie, played by Rebecca Gayhart, kidnap their best friend, Liz Purr, on her birthday. Because this is apparently an annual tradition and maybe a thing that happened in real life that Darren Stein was inspired by. Shit goes awry when they accidentally kill her. 
So these women are trying to take this girl out for her birthday. They kidnap her, stuff her in a trunk. And then when they open the trunk, they're like, oh, fuck, she's dead. And it turns out that when they kidnapped her, Courtney had put a jawbreaker in her mouth and duct taped over it. So unbeknownst to them, driving in the car to this local coffee shop where they're going to take her out for pancakes, Liz is in the back of the trunk, dead. White as a sheet. So when the girls open the trunk, they are ready, poised with a camera to take a surprise picture of Liz, and she's unresponsive. Courtney is kind of just like, oh, well, that sucks that that happened. While Marcy and Julie are definitely freaking out, going to be sick, what are we going to do? Oh, shit. Courtney sort of coolly devises this plan for how they're going to handle the situation. But she doesn't account for this nerdy girl named Fern Mayo, who is played by a young Judy Greer, catching the girls in the midst of the cover-up and throwing a wrench in their entire plan. So when Fern catches them, she strikes a deal with Courtney to become popular if she shuts her mouth and doesn't say anything about what happened to Liz. Sort of the overarching setup for the movie. And I'll say the tone is very much black comedy, where it's sort of the serious thing of this person getting killed, but no one in the film is reacting to it with the gravity that that type of situation would deserve if it happened in reality. Good synopsis. That's it. It's that and so much more. It is just like a candy-coated, crazy murder cover-up. High school girls gone wild. <laughs> Redemption, creation, horror film all rolled into one. I don't know how else to describe it, but everything is just like candy coated. That's the thing that pops in my mind. Yes. And that was the whole thing with the jawbreaker. I don't have it, so I don't know what the direct quote is, but Darren Stein talks about being inspired by the jawbreaker and how it sort of represents like the duality of the teen girl, kind of candy coated and beautified and smooth on the exterior, but hard as nails on the inside and with the ability to choke you if it wants to. So I thought that was really cool. And I loved how in the opening credits, you have the process of jawbreakers being made. You see like that isolated shot of the mixer arm mixing up the jawbreaker batter or whatever you call it. Yeah. And then all the jawbreakers coming down on the black screen. I love those are iconic opening credits. Oh, they are. That was one thing that I really didn't pay that much attention to when I first watched it. But then when I watched it again, I really paid attention to that. And I was going to ask you, there was one, I guess this was some type of foreshadowing, maybe. There was one snapshot when they were at the age that they are in the movie. And Courtney is strangling one of the girls in the puller, because it's like a series of Polaroids of them growing up. Okay. And there's one where she's strangling. I don't know if it's Liz Purr, which I love that name. Mm. She's either strangling her or Julie. She's strangling one of them, like pretend strangling. Yeah. And no, I and, never noticed that. Yeah, she's pretend strangling. And then there's this cutout above her, like on a card, and it said, Everything dries out your lips. Everything. Oh. 
So when I saw that, I was like, I like had to pause it and go read. I was like, what does this say? And I just thought that that was hilarious. Like everything dries out your lips, everything. And she's like fake strangling this girl in the picture. Like it's a joke, but it's not. And then that made me think like, did Courtney really mean to kill Liz all along? Because you know she was jealous of her. Liz was like the beauty and the kind one. And maybe she was starting to kind of overtake Courtney. And so Courtney subconsciously put the jawbreaker in her mouth knowing that it may just kill her. I don't know. I don't know if it was a complete accident or if Courtney was orchestrating the shit from the very beginning. I mean, I would believe anything. If anyone is is capable of a cold-blooded, premeditated murder, it's Courtney. She <laughs> could do it. I believe it 100%. And we did. We watched a really good, we'll link it in the show notes, is a fashion breakdown that someone did on YouTube. And I thought it was interesting how they talked about the dynamic between all of the women, but the dynamic between Courtney and Liz and sort of how after Liz dies, you see Courtney take on more of the like queen bee qualities fashion wise. And it did make me think the fact that that has happened, okay, it could be like a subconscious thing where Courtney is now just stepping into that role and making it what she wants it to be. Or it could be a thing that she had been planning for all along where now that Liz is gone, I'm able to take on that role and be that person who visually stands out because I'm different from the other two girls. I thought that that was kind of an interesting and might like lend credence to your theory that she could be capable of orchestrating this whole thing. Right. I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I went back and forth with that. And I think it's another thing kind of left up in the air on purpose for you to kind of think in your mind, like, could it be? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's pretty smart. She's pretty calculating. Everything she does, even in high school, is calculated to elevate her to the furthest position and to keep going and i have a feeling if anyone got in her way they were they were going to be taken out one way or the other exactly and i think if the film hadn't gone where it did where ultimately courtney is taken down and exposed as a killer at the prom if it hadn't gone that way i could have seen her killing violette because violette started to rise up and become more popular than Courtney and more powerful than Courtney. And you could kind of see the wheels turning in the movie with Courtney as that starts happening with Violette. So I think there's an alternate version of this movie where Courtney kills Violette too. And then you find out that, oh shit, Courtney premeditated the Liz Per murder. The film could have gone in that way, I think, if it wanted to. I agree. I agree with that. I, I was thinking to myself... If I could change anything in the film, what would it be? And I honestly thought I would probably let Courtney just get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> Although the very end scene, we'll we'll talk about our favorite scenes later, but the very end scene where there where Courtney is very is finally brought to justice <laughs> in a way and it's revealed that she's the murderer, it's it's iconic. And I can't imagine not having that scene, but To me, just how cool would it have been if she'd have gotten away with it, you know, and just 
we don't have to have, oh, the bad girl gets justice and the sweet girl that gets the upper hand and that's the way all women should be. Like, let's just let the nasty killer get away with it because let's look at our current society. That's what happens. If you're white enough and rich enough, and especially a man, you get away with murder pretty easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and go on to have a lucrative career in the public. So right. why not? So I don't know. Yeah, I think that would have been interesting, but it is with all of these teen movies where there's like a HBIC head bitch in charge type character who is a mean girl. There's always a scene where they get their comeuppance. Maybe there are movies where this doesn't happen, but every kind of popular iteration of this type of movie has that scene where the bad girl is punished for being bad. And it's also, I think, leading the viewer to want to see that bad girl get punished. Like while watching Jawbreaker, did you feel like you wanted Courtney to get her comeuppance? Or how did you feel about her? Did you have like positive feelings toward her or negative feelings? What did you want to happen with that character? Hmm. Once again, I think Maybe this is part of the age gap because I've been so conditioned in my life that good girls are the ones that are kind and empathetic and they don't stand out and they don't have sex outside of marriage and they're good little girls and they do what they should do. And in the end, that's the kind of good little girl that wins and makes it in life. And these brashy women that are taunting their stuff and showing too much cleavage and having sex because they want to and all of this, they're the ones that have their comeuppance and they're going to go down. So I think I was so conditioned with that in life, and we all are and still are, that at first I was like, oh my God, this character is terrifying. You know, I hope she gets found out. But by the time I watched it through the second time, I really kind of found Rose empowering. Now, I am not saying that she, there was so many bad qualities such as murder and basically being just a psychopath and uh, just a narcissist, but I think if I could just take out the empowering parts of her and unapologetic of who she is and knowing what she wants and being firm and being in control and just taking control because so many of these attributes that we laud in men, we punish for women having them. So I think the second time around, I got a new appreciation for Rose. I just feel like if we could have taken out the murder and added just a little bit of kindness and empathy to her, she would be like my role model. I kind of feel like if I'm looking at this movie now and I'm thinking about, okay, what could be made better? I would take the Julie character played by Rebecca Gayhart and I would flesh that character out more and I would make her less of a good girl doing the right thing who has empathy and I would put more of a hardened edge to her at times. Now I will say Darren Stein does do this. You have the iconic scene at the prom where you see Julie looking at Courtney and she just mouths eat shit. And it is amazing. And that's that's the most memorable thing that she does in the film. It's when she kind of gets to be mean and bitchy and catty as well. Because I think that, of course, even the nice people who are empathetic have a bitchy, catty quality to them. Everyone does. It's a duality. So I think she could have had 
more of that and gotten more memorable dialogue and funnier things to say that aren't always just, I'm sad about my friend and I'm going to do the right thing for her because it makes her a little vanilla and very much a straight character when played against Courtney and even when played against Marcy. Those two characters are more memorable, get better dialogue than she does, I would say. I agree with that. I didn't like the way that they had her run into the arms of the I guess he was kind of the geek because he was an actor, but he was very good looking and she had to run to him and he was the one that kind of somehow helped her moral compass. I didn't like that. I wanted to see her come to this on her own and not have to depend on someone else to help her. I mean, maybe it was like a deprogramming because she had been in this click for so long. Maybe she needed some type of deprogramming or someone to kind of shake her into reality and say, you haven't been living in reality. This is reality. You have to do something. I wasn't a fan of that. I mean, honestly, I think we you had mentioned this, Lindsay, like the men are just kind of secondhand characters, which I love. They didn't even need to be in the film, but they had some role in the film. So yeah, I just feel that you're exactly right because a lot of the lines that I loved in the film and a lot of the scenes involved these women just saying catty, bitchy, horrible, wonderful things. And that was memorable. Yeah. That character, Zach, played by Chad Christ, I think that's how you say his name. I had to look up his name because I don't even remember it. He's not memorable in any way. He's like, a theater kid who there are rumblings that he's gay. Characters make comments about him being gay. And it's in a way it's done to bring down Julie, his relationship with Julie, like to diminish it, which is, I think, common, common homophobic, common homophobic thing that high school students in the 90s would have done. But as a character, he doesn't get much to do. His role is just kind of to support Julie. But again, it's like she doesn't need that. Why can't Julie come to this conclusion herself? Or why can't Julie and Violette just do things there on their own? Because in the end, it really is Julie and Violette who take down Courtney at the prom. Is Zach even there? I don't I don't. He's there. He he somehow spliced in the the recording. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's he spliced in the recording, which I wish they could have shown one of the girls doing that, but he spliced in the recording and I mean that's fine. I mean there's yeah. no there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah, I do like despite that I I do feel like the film really centered on the women. And I do like that the the women in the film were great and I mean we would be remiss without mentioning Two other women that I absolutely love in this film, Carol Kane. Yes. Gorgeous. And Pam Greer. Just iconic people that were in this film. I wish they'd had bigger roles, but I understand there was a lot going on in this film. But they did, I feel like, make their mark in the film. Yes. And this film does so many interesting things with casting. Like when we started digging into it, we were like, shit, all these people are kind of connected through different horror movies. Or they are just in their own right horror actors. Like Carol Kane was in 
The Mafu Cage. She was in When a Stranger Calls. She was in Office Killer. So all kind of iconic movies. And then, of course, Pam Greer is more known as an action star. And I will say, like, like you mentioned, she just, she didn't, she wasn't, for it being fucking Pam Greer, Mm. it wasn't that memorable of a role for her. They could have given her more to do, but it was still just cool to see her show up in this movie. Very, to me, felt unexpected. It did feel unexpected. When I grew up, she was more like, I think, late 60s, early 70s, Pam Greer was. But I definitely knew of her as a kid. And I think that's why I wanted to see her be tougher, a little bit louder, like yeah. more involved and kicking ass or something, just because that was the roles that I remember her in. And I feel like she was a little bit subdued, even though she had had some good on-screen time, I I feel like they could have utilized her a lot better. I totally agree. I think of all of the adult characters, the one who is most memorable to me, aside from Carol Kane, but even that role, again, I'm not like, oh, it's one of my favorite Carol Kane roles. It's more like, oh, it's cool that they got Carol Kane, you know? Mm-hmm. But you mentioned Jeff Conaway, who was known for playing Kanicki in the movie Grease. And then you mentioned Bobby Wheeler in the TV show Taxi. His role I thought was really funny as Marcy's dad because he just was a really kind of sweet guy, like an unexpectedly sweet guy. Like there's that scene with him and Marcy where he's talking about being a single dad and he's saying that he watches Oprah and he also is like reminiscing on Marcy's childhood. And at one point he starts singing that Tiffany song, I Think We're Alone Now. And it's just really kind of cute and sweet. And it just for one single scene tells you what sort of parent he is. And really, I found it endearing and surprising that that was in there. I do too. I was going to ask you about that scene because it just felt like they kind of made him a buffoon for being empathetic, an empathetic male. And for wanting, concerned about his daughter and the way that he was talking with her. I mean, he was kind of talking with her like she was a third grader. But I was like, they are really making him the butt of a joke when really that's the way parenting should be. Yeah, I mean, I didn't feel like he was, I think the film was treating him like the butt of a joke, but I didn't feel that way about him. I felt like, oh, this is, this is what, a, what a cute dad. Like, he's taking an interest in his kid. I liked when, I forget what he said to her. He said something to her and she was like, dad, don't be a dick. And he says she sounds uneducated. Yeah. It's like just very cute. And he's not taking his role of dad in like an authoritarian turn. He's be, he's trying to like relate to her and get to know her and be empathetic towards her. And like, how, how nice. Yeah. And I thought having him in the film In that fashion YouTube video that you're going to reference, I believe it was mentioned that this movie was as if Grease and Heathers came together and had a love child. And I thought that that was a perfect segue because one of the things to me that made this film iconic is it did have a lot of 50s influence and it had a lot of 80s influence and it was as if those two eras had come together with a lot of the fashions and Jeff Conway having starred in Greece 
and being associated with that 50s type of style of movie that was just so friggin' famous. I think that that was another ode to the 50s style that was brought into the film. Yeah, I think that the colors of the costumes are very 80s, but the silhouettes are very 50s. Not all the time. It's not like a hard rule it follows, but that seemed to to me to be the kind of general direction that Vicki Barrett, the costume designer, was taking things in. And I thought it was cool that she had, so she worked on Clueless, and she also worked on Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, and those are two other films with obviously very iconic style, and you can for sure tell, I would say, that those all share the same sort of style DNA, even though it's not like one-to-one It's not like they're all using 50s silhouettes or anything, but if you put all the outfits from those movies together, I think you would be able to tell there's some type of cohesion here. The way she uses style in this movie to signal what has happened, what is to come, what's happening is incredible. I felt like the YouTube video really brought that out for me. And I had watched that YouTube video before I went back and watched it the second time. And even though the styling was so vivid and such a big part of the movie, it really opened up a lot for me into just how much the costuming in the film was incredible and such an important part of the film. That and the music were two main things that just helped to cement this film as a cult classic. Yeah, so one thing that maybe I'm already like, I forget what I've already talked about, but I think I brought up before how that YouTube video does a good job of, I mean, it's just, we'll we'll link it. It's good. You should watch the whole thing. But one interesting thing that they point out is how in the, there's an opening scene where Liz is still alive and you see Liz, Courtney, Marcy, and Julie walking down the hallway in slow motion. and all of the girls kind of have style and colorways that mesh well with each other. But Liz is in a short dress that is pink and floral. And it's almost more of like a more of like a 50s silhouette, kind of like a fitted bodice and an A-line skirt that is a little bit shorter. So she stands out because she doesn't really match with the rest of the girls. And then in the scene when Violette is first kind of being introduced with the other women and they are walking down the hall together, Violette also has a pink floral dress on. And they both also, Liz and Violette, have pearls on and they're like establishing hallway walk scenes. So it's kind of visually signifying to you that Violette is sort of taking over Liz's role and becoming the Liz of the group. And then as Violette becomes more of her own person and becomes more power hungry, her fashion reflects that because it's sexier, it's more fun, it's kind of almost more like Courtney's signature style or silhouette in some way. So very, very interesting how you can see just charting the outfits for Violette in particular, how that character evolves through the film. Absolutely. Like I said, when I saw the video, it just opened up a whole new world for me as to what each outfit was was signaling. And you could see as Violet's outfits became brighter and she became more self-assured, she became much more of a threat for Courtney, 
who eventually took her down. And I guess Violet then realized the error of her ways of what she had done. But I don't know, that kind of brings me just to another point, Lindsay. I mean, were you rooting for Fern in her transformation? Did you think it was a good thing when it was happening? Or did you think, oh my gosh, she's making a mistake? Or how, how did you feel about that? Especially like when you saw it as a teenager, was this like a secret fantasy where everyone wants to be popular in high school and reinvent themselves? Or how did you feel about it? I mean, I think when I initially saw it, I just wanted every character to be that heightened, Courtney, bitchy character. So I was happy to see Violette become that because as she got bitchier, she got more iconic one-liners. And that's kind of the lovable thing about this film. So I think for me, I wasn't really thinking about it in any type of, I wasn't really analyzing it, let's just say. I was just thinking, oh, this character is becoming more interesting, more intriguing. This character is getting more to do, and this character is becoming funnier to me. Mm -hmm. But I will say watching it again as an adult, obviously, it's a little bit different and it's a little bit more complicated because when we think about these makeover scenes, it's more interesting to think about, okay, what does this signify? What is the film telling us about who this person was before based on how they looked? What were their looks supposed to signify to us? And I think it's not even just the looks, right? Because once Fern goes from being Fern, which is like this, you know, she's got kind of a mousy brown hair. She wears like oversized clothes that are more indicative or more representative of the 90s fashion style. When she goes from that to Violette, who is blonde and has short hair and is very polished and put together, it's not even just her fashion that changes. It is her personality, the way she holds herself, the way she walks down the hallway. All of that is different. Like she has straighter posture. She's looking people in the eyes when she talks to them. So I think, I don't know what I'm, what I'm saying is a little convoluted, I think, but I'm trying to say that there's more that goes into it that that is not just like, oh, they took this character and they made her more traditionally, conventionally beautiful. It's like she really became another person entirely in the way that she acts as well. So I don't know. There is something there's something both disturbing about that and also appealing about that. I could see that. I think we reinvent ourselves at least every five to 10 years in our lives. That's yeah. my theory. That, and if you, if you don't, maybe you need to step back and look. It may be in time for reinvention because I certainly wouldn't want to be the way I was at 16 no. at the way that I am now at 58. That would be pretty sad. But what I like to think of is, it is like two separate people. Like you had Fern, you had Violette. It was almost like, and I, I read this and this is so true. It was almost like a Frankenstein creation. And that whole scene of when they were remaking her really rang like Frankenstein's laboratory to me where she remade herself into another person. But then I like to think that somehow at the end when... She realized what had happened and she was humiliated and she wasn't in the clique anymore. I like to think that those two melded together and maybe she got the best of both of them. Like she became sweet 
wonderful, empathetic, I know I did wrong, fern combined with self-assured, I'm beautiful, I don't need to be apologetic, I can take control of my life, Violet. That's what I like to think, that she became the perfect Frankenstein monster that went on and had a good life and kind of found her way. I would hope so. I mean, I think that so much of high school and young adulthood is trying on different personalities to try to figure out what suits you, right? Like it t- just takes a while to figure out how to how to convey to the world how you are on the inside. I don't think that's a thing that for a lot of people comes naturally, just being who you are. So instead of just being who you are, because that's a that's a hard thing to do, especially when you don't know who you are. So it's all about trying out different personas, trying out different looks and figuring out what feels right to you, like what feels like a good exterior representation of your interior. So that to me is kind of what the makeover scene is in a lot of ways and how we see it like manifest in the film after it happens. It feels like it's Violette trying to try on this Courtney persona to see if it works for her. And I think ultimately, because she is taken down by Courtney, she finds that it, it doesn't suit her. She can't adhere to it all the time. She's, she's not going to successfully be that type of person. Right. And that feels, that feels true to life in a lot of ways, even though obviously it's like really heightened in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I like to think also that Julie, the character played by Rebecca Gayhart, I think that she also had a reckoning. It was the complete opposite of Firm Violet. She went from being a click and in the in crowd to being taken down to more of the Fern level. So I like to think that maybe she too also came to a better place in her life where she could find out who she is and go forward. So in that way, I feel like a lot of people may not agree with me when I say this, but I feel like in a way the film may have been somehow empowering for women to show it's okay to take control of your life. It's okay to be considered what they would call bitchy, but I would say to know what you want, to be self-assured, to go after what you want in life and not feel bad about it, to not have to play a role to men or anyone else, to not have to be liked or loved by everybody. I feel like it had a lot of good messages there as well. Yeah, I think so. And especially for a girl in high school, like thinking back to myself in high school, being in control of my own narrative, not depending on men for anything, being able to embrace the facets of my personality that are more aggressive, that are more confrontational. I think that's a really hard thing to do because women are so conditioned to be submissive and to not make waves. So I think in this way, to see this flip side of this high school girl who is able to really channel that part of her personality and not just to channel it, but to use it to shape her own narrative and create her own reality, I think is super powerful. Now, again, as an adult, I have like different ideas of what feminism is and how I want to be. And I don't this is this is like a very exaggerated, one-sided, heightened version of that. 
But I think there's like a piece of it that fits into the larger narrative of feminism as well. Like it's a tiny little slice and it's a very biased slice. And it's a slice that thinks that just being kind of nasty and acting like a man in many ways is empowerment. And I know that that's not wholly true, but it's partially true. And I think it's especially sort of true when you are in high school and you're trying to find yourself. When finding yourself and channeling yourself and, and learning how to project that to the world is the most important thing in your life, this does become empowerment, if that makes sense. No, no, I, I absolutely see that and I agree with that. And I do feel like it it gave out a lot of good feminist overtones. From everything that I've read, this movie has become, I mean, a cult classic for so many people, but I believe especially in the gay community. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. I mean, we know that the writer-director was gay. Do you feel like, I mean, why do you feel like this particular film maybe has such a appeal to so many gay men out there? In different interviews we've read, Darren Stein has talked about how gay men love seeing a bitchy woman. And Again, like I hate to, I, I'm not a gay man, so like why should you know take this with a grain of salt? Um, but it does seem that that is something that many gay men love, a bitchy woman. And I think that part of it is, again, like I, I'm hesitant to talk about this because I'm worried I'm just going to sound ignorant as fuck. But it does seem like it's a desire for... What is more feminized behavior that might be appealing to a certain gay man to have a, a powerful influence, right? It's some, mm -hmm. For some gay men, their feminized qualities are chastised and diminished and denigrated. So to have a movie where those types of qualities are powerful and those types of qualities are seen as desirable, I think would be pretty powerful. I mean, it is for it is for women, too, but I can see for a certain type of gay man, that being something that you really desire to see, those qualities in yourself that you're told to diminish because they're embarrassing are those qualities that, that, that are then being upheld and, like, regaled in the world of this film. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. And and to anyone listening to this, we would love to get your opinions, especially if you are a gay man. Are we on that, off of that? And just anyone's opinion, please uh, feel free to, to leave us your thoughts about that as well. I would even say I don't know specifically what the lesbian community feels about this film, but I can say like the queer community, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of homoerotic strains uh, with the female relationships as well. Mm -hmm. Like you have that scene when Violette is talking to the detective played by Pam Greer, and she goes on this sort of tangent about Liz's shiny hair that smells like apples and the cluster of beauty marks on her neck. And that is very, very sexually charged. And then there are a lot of jokes about being bisexual, there are a lot of kind of suggestive close-ups of like two of the women 
putting a hand on top of the other hand, there's a comment that Courtney makes where she tells, she says, oh, so aggressive, Julie. It kind of turns me on. Mm -hmm. But then she says, I'm sure Fern likes it. So it's sometimes suggestions of queerness that are first embraced and then diminished. There's like always a push and pull kind of. But I think that it's more often than not highlighting those qualities in a way that is not dismissive like a lot of other movies and a lot of like real life attitudes were like in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I don't know that this was my favorite scene, but one scene that I really enjoyed was seeing Rose when she was with her. I wouldn't even say he was her boyfriend. I think it was more like her boy toy that she was using with the popsicle and they were having sex and she was making him suck the popsicle just like he was sucking a penis, of course. And that was the reference. And she said she liked a little kink. And I just loved that she was being so powerful and aggressive and she knew what she wanted and that he was sucking on the popsicle. And there was stuff that was said that could be considered homophobic, but then it was almost like an ode to to having gay sex in some way. And I don't know, it was was just a scene that just kind of stuck with me as, at first you kind of think of it as being like a funny, maybe weird scene, but I think there was, once again, a lot more in there that I may not even understand of, you know, what was being said. Just seeing... Courtney be dominant is interesting and exciting and not something you see a lot or you saw a lot at that time in teen movies where it's not her being dominant for a joke. It's her being dominant because she wants to be dominant. Like Courtney, if she were a gay man, would be a power top. She is making this man do this thing just because she wants him to do it, just because she wants to have power over him. It's it's not even, it almost like transcends sex for her and just becomes about the power aspect. Right. And yeah, you don't, you just don't really see uh, that power given to women or that desire given to women. And even in that scene, when it first starts, Courtney is in maybe the bathroom or another room or something. And we see Dane, the boy toy, arranging himself on the bed in a way, trying to look like most alluring to Courtney. And I thought that that was really cool, too, because you don't ever really see, like, how many times in a movie do you see a man primping in front of the mirror or trying to look most appealing to a woman, right? You always see a woman doing that for a man. But seeing a man do that for a woman is is cool and subversive. And that's just kind of what that scene was to me, like, cool and subversive. And we're going to show you something that you don't typically see and it's going to be powerful for that reason but also for other reasons as well like very multi-layered exactly well i have to ask you this this to me this is is the fun part of the podcast Mm -hmm. even though all of it has been fun i want to know what is your favorite scene in the movie like if you had to pick out one scene that you just could not live without what would it be Hmm. so hard I know I do love the scene at the end when 
Courtney has been exposed as a killer and everyone is pelting her with corsages at the prom. I mean, obviously, that is really an iconic scene. And I thought it was cool, too. They talked about how they shot that scene and it was her strapped to a dolly rig so that it looked like she was floating through the crowd and everyone was stoning her with those corsages. And to me, that's that's a very memorable scene. When I think about this movie, I do think about that scene first, but uh, there there are so many that are so good. And we were talking about this before, too. Like, there's so many where it's like the dialogue is really iconic, but visually it's not the most special. And then there are those scenes where visually it's really special, but the dialogue isn't that iconic. I don't know. What would you say? Oh, my God, it's so tough. I mean, of course, the prom scene, of course, them walking down the halls both different times when they're strutting their stuff. And I forget what song was being played. You who? Yeah. I think that that's iconic. But actually, I'm going to go, I'm going to just say two maybe lesser scenes that maybe I could do without them, but I just thought that they were so good. And one of them was for dialogue and one of them was visual. The one for dialogue is when they were sitting in the lunchroom, Julie's out, Violet's in, and Violet takes out a paper bag. <laughs> she has a mm-hmm. tuna fish sandwich in there, and she starts to open it, and Courtney goes off on her like, oh, my God, put that up. We don't eat in public. And she goes on this whole discourse of why they don't eat in public. It is brilliant dialogue. And then at the very end, one of my favorite things is Courtney is just exasperated with her and she like takes out a compact and she's looking at herself and she's like, I better not get a zit from this. Like yeah. like the whole exchange just like caused her oil pores to <laughs> open up <laughs> or something. I just laughed out loud at that entire scene because how many times, I don't know, maybe not in your generation, my generation, you know, if a guy took you out to eat, you're not supposed to really eat. Like it's ridiculous. I just love that whole scene. Yeah. And then the scene that I loved that didn't have compelling dialogue, but I thought it the cinematography on it was so brilliantly done is when they were announcing the death of Liz Purr and everyone in the hall is frozen and the lights are kind of dimmed and the only mm-hmm. person you see walking through the people that are like frozen in time, the high school students at their lockers frozen in time is Julie. And just the look on her face and Carol Kane is the one announcing it over the intercom. And that was just so eerie. And I just thought that that was so brilliantly done. It was kind of a flashback to, okay, we're taking this all out of proportion and someone has just been carelessly killed, but it was a human life. And it just kind of brought you back into that moment. Like, (laughs) we should really be sad about this. Oh, that also reminds me of the scene when... I think Julie is outside of Liz Purr's house, maybe, and she's looking in the pool. And then you sort of see Liz Purr come up out of the water, and she's wearing, like, I think she's wearing kind of, whatever it is, it's strapless. Her nipples are erect, I noted. And she looks very blue, but very kind of icy and cool, and has this, like, blank expression on her face. And then I think... I think maybe does her mom come out and then Julie goes and hugs her mom or something. 
but it's very surrealist where it's obviously like Julie is imagining this happening, but you're seeing it like it's one cohesive scene. And again, it's kind of it like reminds me of that intercom scene where it brings you a little bit back to reality, even though it is really surreal. But it does remind you that, OK, Liz was Julie's best friend and she's died and it's sad. So a little like more humanizing, realistic in the emotions, I guess. Right. Yeah. Another shout out to the cinematography of the film. I do not. I cannot remember the cinematographer's name, but she did an incredible job. Her name is Amy Vincent. Yeah. And interestingly, I was looking through her IMDb credits. She was the uncredited second assistant camera on Heather's, if IMDb is to be believed, and also worked as an, I think, uncredited camera operator on Clueless. So those are not, I mean, she has, she has more cinematographer credits, including like Eve's Bayou and the remake of Footloose, and she's done a bunch of TV work. So she's very much worked as a cinematographer for a while, had a healthy career and everything. But I just thought it was cool because obviously Heathers and Clueless are two other iconic teen girl movies. Yeah, she's a very talented lady. Lindsay, the interview, I don't know where it came from that you sent that she did. One thing that I noted is she talked about originally she wanted to be a veterinarian and she talked about how she walks her dogs and it brings her out into nature. And that's what influences a lot of her visions when she does a film. So I just thought that that was very cool. And I believe that she's someone... If you're listening to this podcast, just check her out and a little bit of her career because she is definitely one talented person. Yeah, and I'll use this as just an opportunity to say, so she worked on the TV show Claws, which I think is insanely underrated, and I really want more people to watch it. And in many ways, I feel like it is sort of the black comedy kind of sister to Jawbreaker. It has a lot of the same appeal to it, I think. If you watch it, I, I think you'll know what I mean. Tell me if you think I'm if you've seen it and you think I'm totally off base. But yeah, I think she directed an episode of that and I thought, oh interesting. That's you know, it's to me, those visually and the way they use fashion too and beauty really remind me of each other. Cool. I have not seen that, but it is going on my ever growing list of things that I must see. I'm gonna add that on there. Yeah, you will like it. Uh, Niecy Nash is in it. She is oh, very good. The whole cast is loved really her. good. Yeah. I loved her. What was that thing she was in for years? Um, Reno 911. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. And that, and Claus is another one that is very, there are a lot of characters that are like pansexual or queer and you wouldn't expect them to be. Like they don't seem like they would be because they are on the outside very hyper masculine oh who is i can't think of it's the guy in breaking bad who plays hank who is that actor oh dean norris oh yeah he plays like a mob boss in claws and i think he's either he's definitely queer maybe he's pansexual maybe he's bisexual i'm not sure how he identifies in the world of the show but his character is very like hyper masculine but queer and it's that duality, again, does a really, really good job of highlighting it in a way that isn't try hard. 
Okay. I'm bumping this up on my list. <laughs> okay. I'm going to bump it up. Sorry, I was going to have a tangent. It. Yeah. No, you'll, you'll like it. Okay, Lindsay, here we go. Putting you on the spot. What is your favorite quote from the film? Well, obviously, I mean, I do say peachy fucking keen a lot. And that is <laughs> a quick, quick, easy one that has made it into the lexicon. But I think the more lesser known quote that I really like is when Courtney is talking about Dane, her boyfriend or boy toy or whatever. And she says, Let's face it. He was born to be prom king. What he does after prom is his problem. He could get married, coach Little League. I could give a shit. <laughs> He's a yearbook photo, a letterman's jacket, a piece of nostalgia that probably won't even stand the test of time. And I like that because it is brutal. It's like a brutal takedown of the popular guy in high school who everyone wants to either be or be friends with or have sex with. She's saying, like, fuck that guy. He's just meant to, like, be this caricature in my story. And when I don't need him, I'll discard him. And his life after high school is probably going to be sad. And who even cares? Like, I don't care about that at all. And that attitude is not what you typically get from a teen girl in a movie, right? You get the, like, pining, like, I want him to like me and it's going to be a forever love. And Courtney is just so not about that at all. And I love it. Oh, I love that too. Yeah, I had that down as one, like one of my top three. When she went on that whole discourse, I'm like, why couldn't I have heard this when I was in high school? I could have used this to yeah. like, put so many people into perspective. And it's so true. I just love that. Me too. What's yours? <sighs> Once again, I had a couple. I mean, I thought it was funny when Carol Kane walked in the girl's bathroom and she's like, oh, that was funny. But I think, all right, I have to, I have to do like two. One, and both of them I contribute to Marcy, mm. which I don't think Marcy gets enough cred for some of the stuff she says. But one of them is after they kill Liz Purr. I just love that name. After yeah. they get, kill Liz Purr, they pull up to the school and they're all sitting there talking. And Courtney goes, Liz is dead. Do you have any idea what that means? You were shooting for prom queen? Yeah. Like, I thought that was funny. And then the other one, which is, it's kind of a lead up to it, but it's when they're taking Liz's body back into her bed to position it and act like she's been raped and that's why she was killed. And they struggle, puss, like they're moving this body. They all have on high heels. They have to take it up all these stairs and they finally, you know, it's, it's got rigor mortis. It won't move. And they finally all hoist it in the bed and they're all laying there. And Marcy goes, That is no 105 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> like, here's this horrific thing of them moving their dead friend's body. And all she can think about is she's not really 105 pounds. Yeah, that's that was so <laughs> perfectly bitchy. And like the 90s were such a fat phobic time. Not that now, now is also a fat phobic time, but the 90s, especially with like the Kate Moss, way thin aesthetic. And that's, that's feels so indicative of the era to me. It does. There's just so many good one-liners and just things in this movie that I, I really saw on the second watch. I could see why you would quote this on your, what was it? 
MySpace or AIM message or whatever you yeah. said you were using at the time. AOL Instant Messenger. It oh, was like it was like a thing you would like craft your away message to again like to show how cool you were and how many things you had seen or how culturally relevant you were or whatever. Yeah. Oh, and I just have to say one more where they're in the bathroom and she goes, you know what time, what what we have to do? And she's like, pre-launch touch-ups where they're yeah. on their makeup. I love that scene. I tried so hard. I was like, I wonder if I can identify, because I'm one of my <laughs> random niche interests is like makeup brands from the 90s. Like if I'm going down a nostalgia hole or something, it's always makeup from the 90s. So I was really like trying to identify any of the lipstick colors. I just wasn't sure. I looked at it for like 10 minutes and couldn't couldn't tell. So if anyone knows what brand of lipstick they're using or any of the lipstick colors, you can really see the exterior of the bullet really well. So if it was something you had, you would probably recognize it. Well, and my last thing that I wanted to ask you is what was your, we've talked about this, about how important the outfits were. So what was your favorite outfit? Oh, it is so hard to choose. And we'll we'll post pictures of our favorite outfits in the show notes so that you can see them. But I, I think I probably have to go with the outfit when Courtney and Violette have the confrontation in the bathroom. And Violette is wearing a pink, it's like a pink bedazzled hot pant or like a cigarette pant <laughs> with a pink bedazzled moto jacket and then she has a tank top on that says bitch and it's like one of those ones you would get on like the boardwalk where they spray paint the words on there and it's just it's an iconic outfit and she also has a bitch license plate so she's really embraced this moniker this bitch moniker and it's just it's just great it's not an outfit i would wear or anything but it's an outfit that is like very memorable and like a nasty alternative Barbie or something. That is an iconic outfit. Yeah. What's yours? I would say, of course, mine's on Courtney. And surprisingly, this may be something that a lot of people wouldn't pick, but I liked it right after Violet's makeover and they're walking down the hall and she's wearing the purple 50s looking pedal pusher pants. We call yeah. them pedal pushers the everything's purple her her like little tube top she has on the jacket she has on a little purple handkerchief off to the side and I just felt like that was just such a power play you know she's all monochrome purple she's in her glory at this point she's gotten rid of her nemesis she's taking control and I just felt like that was my my favorite outfit with her it was between that and her prom dress because I loved the silver and the way that Me they too. had all the silver all up in her hair and just the way that it all came down as she she went. So I almost picked her prom dress, but I would have to say it was the 50s look of her walking down the hall, wearing pants, being so different, wearing something different than she ever had before. Yeah, I really, really like that outfit. And I think also she has a little, she has like a very slight cat eye eyeliner going mm -hmm. on. It does remind me of like Sandy or Rizzo in Greece. It's Definitely. very much that aesthetic. 
Definitely. And we would love to hear from everyone. What is your favorite outfit? What is your favorite scene? What was your favorite quotes? We'd love to get some feedback from you and to hear what you think. Yeah, and I would also like to know, I thought, so in the in the credits of the film, they have like a special, I don't know, is it special thanks or something, where they list a lot of the brands that were used. And I want to know if anyone out there remembers Dollhouse. Because I went, I can't even, I legitimately spent like an hour trying to find out the history of this brand and I could not find anything on it because number one, I think it was very like 90s specific. And now I think like Macy's has a licensing deal with them or something, but just trying to find the history of the brand is really hard. And I remember it being a standalone thing where they had a website and you could shop on their website. So if anyone else remembers Dollhouse Clothing. I believe that's where they got some of the clothing in the film. And also, I think a lot of the sunglasses, which are really, really cool, come from that brand. And the hosiery that they wear. Oh. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I did read that Vicki Barrett, the costume designer, did the seam up the back of the stockings herself. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's very prominent. And they feature those seams a lot. Yeah, it always cut to the seams with them walking or the seams on their stockings so many times. Yeah, it's like very memorable part of the costumes. And it always makes me think of Emily Gilmore, who she says to Lorelai, she's like, don't wear those pantyhose with the seams up the back. You look like 10 cents a dance. And that's always what those (laughs) uh, stockings make me think of. But they're very cool. They look awesome in this film especially with the rest of the costumes is there anything else that we did not talk about that? oh you know what we should mention tatiana ali is in this movie randomly oh yeah she played ashley banks on the fresh prince of bel-air which is kind of predominantly what i know her from but she doesn't she doesn't have a lot to do so she's not a super memorable character she does have a few lines of dialogue but it's just kind of random that that she's in this, but they don't really give her much. Yeah, that once again, it just goes to the cast. Just what a brilliant cast. And just one of the last things I would also like to mention is the music. You had the Donnas playing at the high school prom. You had Veruca Salt Volcano Girls. I mean, the music in this was just incredible. And the soundtrack, I'm going to have to look up and see if they have the, the soundtrack so I can get it. Because it was the music to me made so much. Imperial Teen, Yoo-Hoo, great, great music. Yeah, the music is really fantastic. I was going to see if they have, let's see who, if they've credited anyone. Um, no, I don't think so. It's just really like sound department and then some mixers. So I don't know if, I don't know who picked out the songs. I don't know if it was Darren Stein. It doesn't look like there's anyone with a credit. Oh, wait, music by Stephen Endelman. But I would think that that, he is a composer. So I would think that that would be for, now that I'm thinking about it, really, is there a score to this movie? When I think about it, I just truly was not really paying a ton of attention to this. Or I, when I think of this movie, I just think of popular 
music from all different eras used in prominent scenes, but I'm like not remembering there being a score. Yeah, I don't specifically remember a score. I, like I said, I just remember it just seemed like different songs were queued up. I noticed even one song was by Pat Benatar, but it was an updated version. Someone else was singing it. I remember that. So I think that they tried to keep it with whatever currently was happening at the time. Okay, there there is a score. (laughs) I'm looking at it and there it's like uh, named after particular scenes like okay veracruz interrogation and fern exposed but i you know sorry steven endelman that i that i didn't really pay much attention to your score but the the rest of the music is just so memorable that it's hard to focus on that and it may be a good thing that that just blended right in <laughs> yeah there you go yeah. it could, i would say for this movie that's a positive yeah I think it's a positive. So I just want to say in in closing, Lindsay, thank you so much for mentioning this movie. I'm glad that it has come into my realm. I'm going to rekindle my high school self and be sure and use some of these quotes for the rest of my life. Yes. <laughs> Whenever I'm referencing something which I think is a good thing. I think it somehow reinvented myself to find the fun, bitchy, catty, self-assured side that tends to get beaten down sometimes. So I really enjoyed this film. And I would highly recommend if anyone here has listened to this and has not seen the film or has not seen it in a long time, go back. You can rent this cheaply off of Prime Video. It's there, and I enjoyed every moment of it. So good. You will not regret it. Whether you've seen it before or you've never seen it, you should get something out of it if you watch it. And Joe, why don't you tell everyone quickly what we're watching next time, because it's going to be a movie that you really loved that I have not seen. Yes, we we are doing probably a 180-degree turn from <laughs> Jawbreaker into one of my favorite films. I have not seen this in a long time. I'm going to have to rewatch it myself, so I hope it holds up. But the film is Tender Mercies, starring Robert Duvall is the main character in the film, and Lindsay has never seen that. And I am excited for her to watch it. And I really like Ellen Barkin. So I think it'll be worth watching just for that reason. But yeah, hopefully I like it as well. I have still haven't watched it. So that's that's going to have to happen in the next week or so. Yes, yes. Like I said, it's been years and years since I've seen it. I am going to rewatch it. Hopefully it holds up. But you know what? If it doesn't, I mean, no film is perfect, but hopefully it will be a good watch. And either way, we'll be talking about it in our next podcast. Yes. So if you want to watch that and know what we're talking about next time, it does look like it's available to rent for a dollar on Amazon Prime Video. So you could do that or it's also available a bunch of other places. So we would love it if you watch the film, and then come back and discuss it with us in two weeks' time. 
and thank you for joining us for Jawbreaker. We hope this was fun and we would love to hear if you have any nostalgia for this film, your your favorite outfits, your favorite one-liners. Let us know. We're always curious and you can you can reach us at sup at womaninrevolt.com if you want to send an email or you could hit us up on at Woman in Revolt on Instagram, which we check when we feel like it. So would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. Yes. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.